You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Well, hello and welcome to supporting primary learning during the COVID-19 outbreak. And thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Sandy Leeton-Gray, Associate Professor of Education at the IOE, and I'll be your chair for this online event. Now, COVID-19 and the associated public health measures have severely disrupted all schooling, but they pose specific challenges for primary schooling, given the very young age of the pupils it serves. While term has ended, the demarcation between time and the school holidays won't be so clear cut this year. Meanwhile, the current disruption seems set to continue into the new school year in September. Accordingly, we wanted to look at how primary schooling has adapted since the lockdown and take your questions on how teachers and homeschoolers can navigate the new normal. So we want to hear from you. Please send us your comments and questions. You can do that via the chat function on the YouTube page or via Twitter. For Twitter, please use the hashtag IOE Coffee Breaks. That's IOE Coffee Breaks. While you're doing that, I'll briefly introduce myself and our speakers and I'll start the discussion with a couple of questions of my own. So my expertise is in the sociology of education, spanning many aspects of education policy, teacher professionalism, and also artificial intelligence and biometrics in education. With me today, I have Dr. Alice Bradbury, Associate Professor at IOE. Alice's research examines the impact of policy in primary and early years education, with a focus on inequalities and issues of social justice. Some of her most recent work has focused on the introduction of baseline assessment to track the progress of primary age pupils. We also have Dr. Josh Franks, lecturer in early years and primary education, also at the Institute of Education. Prior to moving to the Institute, Josh taught for over a decade in an outstanding primary school in inner city London. He was subject lead for English and supported borough-wide improvements in English provision. His research interests include intrinsic motivation in the teaching and learning of writing. So to start off the question and answers, um, I'd like to ask both of you, um, what do you think has been the general experience of primary schools and teachers since lockdown? And what have they had to do to pivot to remote contact with pupils and their families. Josh, can I ask you first of all? Yeah, certainly, thank you. Um, I, what I'd first say is uh, in the introduction, Sandy, you talked about the um, uh, kind of smooth transition or no transition from term time to um, holiday time. Um, I'd like to reject that idea for a start as a, a parent who's been trying to homeschool my uh, children. <laughs> I certainly will be stopping at the end of uh, term time. Um, and uh, giving up any sense of uh, guilt about not doing maths and uh, uh, English and those sorts of things um, uh, beyond the uh, middle of uh, July. So to reassure anyone else out there, um, please do uh, make some sort of effort to uh, mark the end of term uh, with your children at home. That's one, one uh, uh, piece of advice I would give. Um, in terms of how schools have adapted, I guess one thing to kind of state is that it is tricky to 
um, evaluate um, with a sample size. I guess I'm, I'm looking at maybe up to 50 uh, partner schools that we have on PGCE and schools that I know personally. So I'm kind of talking, I guess, about um, trends that I'm seeing in that kind of number of schools and things that seem to be working well, things, uh, things that seem to be effective. So what's very clear, I think it doesn't maybe need to be said, but an awful lot of work has gone in uh, from uh, teachers and schools uh, with no particular framework in place uh, to support children remotely um, whilst maintaining school schooling as well for vulnerable and key worker children. So I think that that's in itself a, a really um, heavy amount of work that's had to be done. It's remarkably difficult. I think remote contact contact, as you've said, for this age group is remarkably difficult. And I think it's probably generated an awful lot of guilt and frustration for both schools and parents. If you think that without the uh, kind of second by second, uh, minute by minute assessment and contact that uh, a teacher has the capability of uh, utilising, they're able to find the right words to reassure, the right questions to develop learning. Um, and so instead of all that, the stimulus has had to be very generic. And I think that what that seems to have highlighted is, a, is this kind of dichotomy almost, where you've got at one end uh, parents who perhaps relatively need fairly little support, but who are desperate and seeking lots from the school. And at the other end of that spectrum, you've got those perhaps who are in most need of support who may be engaging the least. Um, and I think that um, with all of them want the best for their children, but the, the context of the school cannot be replicated at home. So I'll give you a, 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 an example. So I'm asking you to imagine that, that you're a parent with a six-year-old and a nine-year-old at home. You've got resources from the school. You may have YouTube videos. You may have even the teachers delivering some things online. You think, fine, I'm set up here, but after 10 minutes, both children decide they've had enough. They're not willing to engage. They don't want to do anything at all. You then start feeling awful that you can't cater for their needs and that their learning's going to go down the toilet and their future is ruined. Now, it might seem a bit of an extreme example, but it does sound like this is the sort of thing that, that, that parents and schools are aware uh, that parents are worried about. Well, first thing to say is that as an experienced teacher, it's utterly impossible that situation where you've got a six-year-old and nine-year-old and you have no way of being able to cater minute by minute, second by second to what they're doing. So firstly, uh, it's impossible. And I think what that highlights is that there are two approaches which I think schools have uh, taken, which I think have been very successful. I think the first is to be very clear in their messaging to reassure parents. So there's a difference between what they've provided and what they are expecting. I think that that's been something that has been incredibly important that, that schools have done very well. To provide lots of resources, but to reassure at the same time that that doesn't mean an expectation. So I think the schools that have done it well have done that. And secondly, and I think I'll, I'll talk about this uh, uh, later on, is that the schools which have highlighted the enormous difference between teaching and learning are the ones who have done really well as well. So the ones who have emphasised children's learning rather than teaching, I think, are the ones who have been most successful. And just to give you an example of that as well, you know, I, I could say, for example, that I spent the week teaching my cat to play chess um, and I could post it on the WhatsApp group and lots of pet owners would feel really guilty that they haven't done the same thing with their cats. And yet 
my cat may well have learned absolutely nothing. Yeah, it, I mean, as it happens, he's a chess grandmaster. But but it, but my point is that there is not a smooth transition between teaching and learning. And so, therefore, I think that schools have that have been able to emphasise the learning bit have been uh, the most successful in reassuring parents and supporting children. At you, Alice, what thoughts do you have on this? Um, I think it's just important to remember that although there's been um, a lot of talk in the media about schools shutting, um, of course, they haven't shut at all. They've been open the whole time to key workers. And it's actually been, you know, almost like there's been two, I think, for primary schools. They've had a period where everyone went home apart from the key worker children and then it was online teaching. And then the period, of course, the last few weeks um, since the 1st of June, uh, when some children have been back, some children are at home, and so they've kind of duels and running as well. So that's been a, a huge amount of change for um, primary schools. And one of the things we found in some of the research we've been doing is that schools have also taken on a huge burden of um, the sort of duty of care um, tasks, the welfare concerns. So they've been involved in distributing free school meal vouchers, doing actual meals, organising food, but also um, being in touch very regularly with um, parents, uh, you know, by phone or by email and even doing visits. So there's been a huge amount of extra work as well going on, um, which I think is one of the most significant things that has, uh, you know, been different for primary schools. Um, of course, that burden doesn't fall equally. So it's not like all schools have had the same experience. And one of the things that we're finding out more and more about as we research people's uh, schools experiences is that the experience of Lyme and pandemic has been felt very differently in different communities. So I think that's one uh, important thing that primary schools have um, had to adapt to, they've had to change, but they've had to also change depending on their their own circumstances. Yeah, it's a very complicated situation, isn't it? Um, we're getting a few questions in from members of the public. Um, one has said, Josh was clear that children should still have their summer holiday, but what about the increased learning loss given all the disruption that's preceded the end of term? Um, well, <laughs> uh, very, very interesting question because I think that it's interesting you say a learning loss, um, and I think that hints at the distinction I was making before between the, different, the difference between teaching and learning. So I think uh, there's been a teaching loss, that's for sure. But I think that there's um, quite a lot of value uh, and quite a lot behind that term kind of learning loss. And I mean, I, I would kind of bow to Alice on this one because she's the expert in terms of the impact of high stakes assessment on the way in which schools conduct themselves. But I think that, that where that question may be coming from is this fear that perhaps um, ultimately children may fail at later exams and tests because somehow they've missed out on some core knowledge. And I think it's really, really important. I think that, that in terms of when children go back to school and during the summer, what we look to do is to support their learning from where they're at and uh, develop their sense of, of uh, interest and go with what they're interested in, how they're feeling and their well-being, rather than making some attempt to kind of drag them up to where arbitrarily frameworks seem to suggest that they should be. I think you're on, you're on a, a hiding to nothing and on a kind of losing battle if you are, as a school, as a parent, uh, trying to think uh, about uh, where a child should be. You know, that doesn't really exist. 
And then so if you're then feeling the pressure to kind of go, right, let's, let's get them up to this with a kind of deficit model, drag them up there, um, particularly if you're then talking about the idea that you don't have a break, I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that isn't going to work. And that is, I guess, perhaps what gives rise to some of those feelings that parents have articulated in various different ways about feeling uh, guilty or worried or all those sorts of feelings, which I, I, I mean, I've shared uh, uh, plenty of times that, you know, none of us are immune to it. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly will not work if you have a kind of this idea of what it should look like for your child at that age in September 2020. There is no such thing. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the experiences of independent schools, which have really got to um, be seen by parents to be providing something worth paying for. And so they've had, you know, quite long stretches of time at the computer as, as classes, and they've been doing a lot of synchronous, so real-time teaching. Um, do you think that, and I think some of them have backed off for, from that now and are trying to be a little bit more flexible in their approach. And do you think this has uh, something to do with that idea of a deficit model? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I think it, it it fundamentally comes down to what you believe is the purpose of schooling as well. I mean, you know, that's kind of quite a grand kind of thing to be thinking about, but certainly at, at primary level, um, it, it, you know, you can set up this, dichotomy which I guess is false it's a bit of a false dichotomy because I think schools and individuals lie somewhere in between uh, these two ideas but you have this one idea that, that the idea of schooling is that children know lots of stuff that it's measured by these outputs that they get at, at various different ages along the schooling process and if that is your perspective then yes you're going to demand from your school that that, that is what is provided that that, that is given to the children so that they then know this stuff at the end. And I mean, it's very symptomatic of the, the current kind of schools minister and the curriculum. There's been lots over the last few years which have emphasised that idea that you know lots of kind of highly important stuff, that it, that it has this value to it. However, it, there's a, another end of the spectrum, which is where you're looking at kind of learning and inquiry. And it's, it's kind of an aims base. It's, it's looking at how we develop learners. Um, and I think that, that it may be more uh, prevalent within independent schools that they go for the kind of aims-based and exam kind of measured approach, but I don't know. I, don't, I, I honestly don't know that. I think it's probably equally varied within state schools as well. And I think that, that links back to what I was saying earlier about my concerns for September, is that I think that there is a real risk that you get schools who will try and um, get children to where they should have been and I think as Alice talked about before cruelly lots of those schools tend to be in areas where the children most need the development and the well-being approaches and they're in those areas because results have traditionally been lower and so the spotlight on those outputs is higher and you get this horrible kind of vicious cycle going on so I'm not sure that it's necessarily to do with independent schools but I do definitely think it's to do with what you what your core understanding of what the purpose of schooling is. I just want to ask you one more question from a member of the public, Josh, but, and then I've got a couple of things that we need to ask Alice. Um, Josh, do you think schools need to go over, over the syllabus from March to, to July when they return in September, hopefully? Um, and do you think teachers feel sufficiently empowered to flex the curriculum to accommodate the recent disruption? 
what I would say is I'd hope that the school would support that particular teacher to feel that there's no pressure that that syllabus needs to be ticked off in advance of everything else for the following year. Um, I guess I would hope that, that's, that that teacher feels no more pressure than they will uh, on a, in a normal September where you get children who come back who inevitably won't have retained everything they learned the previous year anyway. So I think there's quite a lot of um, kind of um, uh, hype about the concerns about what will happen. You know, September is, is a nightmare for a new teacher anyway. For the first few weeks, you, you, you're over-pitching, under-pitching, your lessons run too long or vastly too short, the children are kind of, you know, just wild because you don't know those children yet. So yeah. I think the, actually the idea of kind of the, the uh, detail of the kind of objectives which are laid down in the curriculum being what guides you, it's just a nonsense, really. I think what's much more important is that that year starts as every year starts with, with teachers being given the space and time to get to know the children in their class. And that takes a lot of time. I think, you know, it takes at least half a term, if not longer, to really feel that you know your class. And that will be the same as it's been every year. Uh, because we're still talking, you know, I think we're still talking about a relatively short amount of time, um, provided those children are back in a classroom in September. Um, and I think that, that it's even more important, as Alice has highlighted uh, before, that for those children who, um, have not had the same support at home for all sorts of reasons that, that teachers, both by um, government, by their own schools, uh, the, the rhetoric is to support those teachers in taking the time without having to somehow tick off the, the things that they haven't yet got. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think it would be a really unrealistic ask. And also you have to remember that, that when we're having a curriculum, you know, there's a whole set of decisions that goes into what's on that curriculum. Um, and it's an arbitrary thing at the end of the day. And you could just as well have, have argued for other things to be on the curriculum. So it's about remembering that the, the sort of overall process of education. And what, what seems quite interesting to me is this is an opportunity for the, the craft of teaching to be given a prominence. It probably hasn't for a little while uh, because, you know, we've had a very assessment led system. So, uh, you know, kind of interesting times. Now, Alice, uh, we have a question from a member of the public for you and they would like to know, I know you're Team's been doing a lot of work on different experiences of uh, schools um, and the provision that may or may not have been there. Um, they're asking, how do you feel about how teachers work during lockdown has or hasn't come across in the media? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think there's been um, a selection of some of the debates about reopening. Um, and some of the uh, criticism of the unions, particularly in the tabloid press, which has been um, unfortunate, I think, because I think in some ways that's obscured, as I said, the huge amount of work that's been happening, especially head teachers have had to deal with huge amounts of guidance very quickly, very minute decisions, all of the reopening and so on has been um, had to be organized there's a lot of very difficult practical problems with bubbles and and staggering opening times and so on so i think unfortunately there's been um you know, some calls of the media which have seen schools as reluctant almost to reopen which um i don't think they have been i think it's just actually been extremely difficult um 
I know there's big variation in in what homeschooling services have been provided. And as Josh has sort of hinted at, you know, some parents will be happy, some parents won't. Um, but I think, you know, in many ways, my hope with, with this pandemic is that the positive side, which I think has come out in a lot of media um, representations about how difficult teaching is and, uh, you know, the skill that teachers have, um, hopefully that has been kind of being um, made more obvious to the general public. I mean, I've been homeschooling my children and I'm a qualified teacher and, you know, it was really <laughs> tough at times. Um, you know, I found, you know, it practically a real challenge, but but also, you know, it can be, we can we all, we all could, you know, I just remembered how difficult it is, you know, and how well you need to know the child and how well you need to know the curriculum and so on. So, you know, I hope that the general public has learned to be a bit more appreciative of teachers. And I think some of the media discussion has highlighted that and how much we need schools. I mean, we've what it's shown is that schools are at the centre of communities. Uh, parents are incredibly reliant on schools and not just for childcare, but for social um uh, socialising their children and socialising with other parents and so on. So there is, you'd hope that people come out of this with a more positive view of, of schools. It'd be nice to think that that schools and, and families and society in general could all sort of work together a bit better, perhaps, moving forward because of this. And I'm quite, I used to think I was quite good at classroom discipline before this, you know, but... <laughs> I, I'd settle him down and then there would be a lot of wandering about the top landing. There was a lot of going to the toilet, a lot of drinking of water, a lot of not finding things. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, this brings back memories, you know. <laughs> well, weren't you given a rating from your I, home? I, I got feedback. I got customer feedback and I was told I, I'm potentially a very good teacher if I did a bit, a bit more maths and science. Um you know, I, I could be quite good at this. <laughs> so, you know, I live in hope, really. Um, 30 years after uh, starting in the profession. <laughs> so um, one of the things that's coming through is, you know, again, from members of the public, the, a real keen desire to know if there's anything um, that we could advise parents or carers as homeschoolers. Some people are still homeschooling, of course. Uh, any tips, please, that we can give people? Josh, have you got any any um, amount of knowledge type things that could help people at this very difficult time? You're talking about the the the, the way in which school um, helps children as a teacher, what kind of mechanisms you've got in order to support children. Well, the, the main one is as well other children. Uh, you know, it's so much easier to um, get learning happening with 30 children than it is with one or two. I mean, it's just remarkable, the difference. And I think, I suppose one of the things I would say, and I wouldn't describe it as a tip necessarily, but I would uh, uh, say that it's something which I think will lower your blood pressure a bit and perhaps take some of the guilt away, is something as simple as asking the children to think of a topic that they'd like to do, which would last more than a day, something that might last a week. Um, so, for example, if your child is uh, interested in dinosaurs, like mine are like crazy at the moment, then it's very, very likely that that's going to be a stimulus for them to be able to learn an awful lot with and without you. So it might be that, that they are uh, reading, uh, watching particular TV programs, uh, looking at all sorts of resources, and they will be sucking up uh, all of that stuff if it's a topic which interests them. And I mean, you know, this idea of topic 
learning has been around for, for donkey's years, but I think that it really, really works. Rather than mm -hmm. thinking individual lessons don't seem to be working with my child, or when I sit them down at this particular time, they seem resistant. Instead of thinking in that those terms, you're thinking, well, what would they like to do over the next couple of weeks? It's not working today. Okay, well, we'll pick it up tomorrow. In tandem with that, I think agreeing at the beginning, not just what the topic is going to be about, but also what the output's going to look like can be a really, really useful um, uh, stimulus. So it's one thing to learn about dinosaurs, as the example I've just given, but that's very difficult if the child doesn't know for what purpose they're doing it. So you can discuss with them who they might want to uh, teach about dinosaurs, what the format of what they've learned might be. So uh, for one of my children, they've done a, a quiz for um, their uh, grandparents where they made the question so difficult that they were laughing about the fact that their, their grandparents didn't know the answers. Uh, and then the other one was more interested in producing some kind of fact file that, that, that uh, he could then send to his friend and, and uh, his friend's parents. So those two in tandem, I think, uh, can work really, really well. It, it gives a longer term uh, a process um, and it, it just means that the child is in control. And ultimately, without the teacher doing that assessment, the child is in the best position to do it. But they can then take it where they want to. Um, with with maths, which is perhaps sometimes is, is is slightly trickier, then I think really you, you have to advocate doing things like playing games, um, you know, card games, uh, pontoon, playing darts, anything which children are having to use their knowledge of numbers as part of the process rather than uh, um, for the sake of just adding and subtracting. And Alice, have you got any tips? Um, yeah, I think there's a, an important lesson to be learned from um, everything you've done already. People have been home for weeks and weeks, and that's, you know, if things are successful, do them then, you know, try that technique again. If your children really love, you know, topic-based learning, do some more topic-based learning. You know, it's fine to have confidence in, you know, listening to your own children, working out what works for you. You know, some children love worksheets and love sitting quietly for periods of time. And if that's what they like, you know, let them do that for a bit. Um, you always want to have variety. But if, if, if um, you know, you've had success, build on it with other similar things. Um, and I think we have to remember that some children have really flourished in lockdown. Some children have loved taking, you know, control over their own learning independence. Um, you know, we we should remember that, that and learn from that, I think, for the future as well. You know, I feel like as a parent, I've learned a lot about when to time things, particularly, you know, I used to do reading with my eldest daughter in, in the evenings um, and she would be tired and reluctant. And just because of the way it worked, we started doing reading in the morning, um, her reading to me, I mean, and that works much better. And I think, well, I'll carry that on in the summer holidays because that's something simple and easy that I can do in the holidays that is fun for her and fun for me because now when she likes doing it, you know, so I think my tip is to, um, well, first of all, take it easy because it's going to be the summer holiday soon. And like Josh says, we all need a break. But for the what's left of term, because we've got a week left here, um, at least, um, you know, what's left of term, I would say definitely what works well. We've only got a few more minutes. Um a couple more questions. Advice for NQTs. Alice, can I start with you? What advice have you got for an NQT first job? Really difficult, really strange situation. 
Well, first of all, I'd say that, you know, being an NQT is never easy in any year, and they should remember that. So, uh, you know, take all the support you can, ask questions, um, you know, learn around you. You know, yes, things are going to be different, but in the end, you learn to be a good teacher by watching good teaching. And, um, you know, that's the thing is to, you know, as a, if you're a PGC student or a new NQT, um, you still got to learn from your colleagues and learn on the job, just like everyone else, even if there is a, a pandemic. And do you think schools, primary schools, do you think they'll be in a position to support um, NQT learning over the next year or so? Because they've really got a lot on their plates at the moment. Um, I think so. I, I mean, as I said, I think, you know, all the support networks and stuff will still all be there in primary schools. Um, there'll be a lot of experienced teachers still. And I don't see um, really any reason why people can't kind of make the normal um, step from, you know, PGCE to NQT and or so on. Um, because in the end, a lot of the normal day to day functioning of schooling, the t teaching is be carrying on as normal just with with uh, slight differences. And uh, what do you think, Josh? Have you got any advice for NQTs? Having just finished a PGCE year with, with a number of students who have been through um, just the, the most ridiculously strange year as a trainee teacher um, and who will be going into those NQT classrooms in September, I think, just to repeat what I was saying before, which is that actually every teacher in September doesn't know their class. They don't know uh, the, the class of children they're going to teach and they will teach um, uh, it will take them a good few weeks to get to know those children in the class and that is not because they're an NQT it's because those children uh, need uh, getting to know you can't you can't do it straight away so actually I would encourage them not to feel that there's much difference between their situation and every other teacher in every other year um, in terms of their own feelings of confidence, they've lost something like 10 weeks on a PGCE of teaching practice. And so I suppose what I'd be saying is just think, well, you know, by Christmas, you'll never really notice that you missed that time at all. It's just a question of getting to know those children, concentrating on the fundamentals of assessing them minute by minute, second by second, and just really um, prioritizing getting to know them. And you will find that just over that time, you'll become more and more comfortable. Nothing about having missed a few weeks of teaching practice won't make any long-term impact. Given that PGC is crazy short for what you're expecting uh, these uh, trainees to do, um, what they've done instead is to concentrate on other aspects of teaching which are, are very, very important. So they've been looking at, at developing their uh, capability to plan, which alongside you know, a comparable NQT in any other year, that might be what they're worried about. So there, there are, are things that those NQTs going in in September will have done more of than a typical yeah. NQT, even though they haven't you know, just done the requisite amount of time. I think it's much more about that NQT feeling uh, confident than any kind of um, uh, objective reality. I think it is, it's much more about them kind of thinking, well, actually, you know, I, uh, this is the job I want to do. I, I enjoy spending time with children. I'm going to make sure that those children know that I love doing this job, get to know them. And they'll be, be brilliant at it. So we had a, a Twitter poll. Um, and the, the question was, what should primary schools prioritise as they open to more pupils? And I can proudly announce the results. 14% um, uh, voted that it should be academic catch-up. 43% kids' mental well-being. 38% 
both of the above in equal measure and 5% something else. I'm not sure if we know what the something else is. <laughs> so uh, the jury is kind of out, really. Um, but uh, Sarah Dove on Twitter responded to the poll question and said, we need to be humble enough to say we don't know what will help our children the most right now. We might think one aspect, but there is little evidence either way. So she's asking, what are your views? Alice, can I start with you? Yeah, I think I think there's a real problem with the whole catch up narrative that it suggests that we can suddenly wave a magic wand and transform teaching. And one of the things that we're hearing in our research, especially from head teachers, is that they're saying, look, if we knew how to do this, if we knew how to suddenly do a whole term of learning in a few weeks, then we would have done it before. You know, if we knew had some magic wand, we, could, we would have waved it. And so the idea that we can catch up is a real mistake. Um, so, you know, in the end, what's going to work is looking at where the children are, good teaching, and then moving on from there. It's not going to be some some intense period. It's not going on. Uh, response to the question. Uh, first thing I'd say is that I've not, not got an awful lot more to add than, than what Alice has said. Uh, what I would pick up on is the uh, point in the question that there's little evidence. Well, I think that... Um, Alice is uh, amongst uh, the leading people that there is evidence on this and so what she's uh, talking about uh, um, is there's, there's plenty of evidence um, here to back up what um, Alice has said. So, so this is fantastic, we've had a really good session today I think. Um, We've got, had a lot of advice for uh, parents and teachers on the, the stages that we're going to go through as we adjust and readjust to the new normal. We've had some fantastic advice from both of you as experts. So a very big thank you uh, for joining us today and uh, doing a fantastic coffee break. Um, and uh, just to remind everybody, you can still ask questions on Twitter and we'll try and get back to you. Stay safe, everybody. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 